0: This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rolheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FrancisFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University Chicago. I'm here with my friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is the executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is the director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan, Heidi, welcome to you both. I'm delighted to be back with you. How are you doing today? Dan,
1: how have you been? Good, David. Good to be here. Good to see you, Heidi. Good to be with you both. And uh, to our listeners, it's a snowy, cold north. Eastern Indiana kind of day, but it's a good one. We're recording on Valentine's Day, which for those of us who are in religious life means practically nothing. But for all of you who are enjoying uh, the romance and the sharing and the love and the stress of, did you buy enough chocolates or flowers? Peace be with you. <laughs> Heidi, how are you doing?
2: <laughs> I did buy enough chocolate. I'm all set for Valentine's Day and also spreading the love around to all my Valentine's Day friends. So we Celebrated as a day that we can honor all of the people that we love in various ways, not just romantic love. But we're doing great here. Things are busy at NCR as usual, and things are going well with my family. I'm you know, living winter, it's starting to get to be the point where even winter lovers like me are getting a little tired of winter, but but I'm hanging in there. How about you, David? How are you doing?
0: Well, my experience as a father of a 12-year-old means that I navigated Valentine's Day by spending my yesterday helping my daughter pick out the outfit that she would wear to school and helping her think about which Valentine's would be uh, neutral enough to be able to give to the boys in her class who she doesn't want to give, and some of the girls in her class that she doesn't want to give any of the... The sort of insinuations or possibilities because ideas and thoughts run rampant at this time of year at this age. And so everybody is wondering who's going to be pursuing who. And my daughter at this point wants to stay out of all of that. And so it was not exactly an emotional day, but it was a day where we saw the kind of near presence of overwhelm if we weren't careful. I think we navigated it well. I'm proud to say. I'm really proud of my daughter. I'm also proud of my 10 year old son who basically looked at that whole thing, and said, "Mm, not interested in any of it. And he just went to school in his regular clothes and just, you know, he's going to navigate the day as if it's a regular day. So I guess more like a Franciscan in that regard, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) So, and for me personally, I'm still recovering from the shingles, a chronic kind of long-term illness. So I'm in my fifth week, I think right now. I'm doing much better, but still have to be uh, careful about my energy. The semester is in full swing, and I'm continuing to work on new books and book revisions, which is a pleasant task for me, but everything is just, it's a constant act of juggling all of the balls in the air at the same time, and, and that is my life. So as you all have been coming out of this weekend, did either of you get involved in Super Bowl stuff or a Super Bowl party? I didn't, but maybe you did.
2: I'm shaking my head
1: because I feel like I fall into a cliche of some sort of uh, stuffy academic who couldn't care less about about the Super Bowl, which is only partially true. I was very excited up until the Buffalo Bills didn't make it to the final round. And so if the Bills had been playing, I would have been much, much more invested. I noticed at Mass on Sunday here in, in South Bend that there is somebody who is a staff member at an institution at one of our universities here who was w- wearing what I called a protest sweatshirt, which was a Buffalo Bills sweatshirt on the day of the of the Super Bowl to Mass. And so I really appreciated that. For those of us who are upstate New Yorkers and went to school or from Western New York, I know that was a disappointment. But the same with the Kansas City, I imagine, too, for our NCR colleagues at the home, at the mothership there. But Heidi, what did you think? I, I heard you, you were... Watching the Super Bowl,,
2: yeah, so I am a Packer fan, so likewise disappointed, but I had a connection to the Bengals, so I was watching the game and cheering for them. So back when I was quite a bit younger, my cousin's husband was played for the Cincinnati Bengals, his name oh, wow is Tim Crumry. And he actually had a very serious injury the last time the Bengals were in the Super Bowl, which was 1988. And so the New York Times actually profiled him this week to talk about that injury. But also he's been very open about the traumatic brain injury that he has suffered. He played for many years. He was a defensive nose guard. He also coached for many years. So I was cheering hard for the Bengals and sad when they didn't win. Also, I was feeling just a little bit old during the halftime show, so I did recognize all the artists, but I was not singing along as the people I was watching the Super Bowl with all were. They are all about 15 years younger than I am, but, <laughs> but it was a nice chance to get out, and I watched the game with some neighbors, so we're cautiously getting our toes back into socializing with people, so that was a good excuse to, to watch a game with some other folks.
1: I I didn't, as I mentioned, I didn't watch the game. I did watch the series or at least season finale of The Book of Boba Fett on Disney Plus, which was really exciting for a Star Wars nerd like myself. But I did see on social media people going on and on about the halftime show, the people who loved it, the people who hated that. And I think, uh, Heidi, I might be close to that demographic because it was a lot of people my age. uh, And I recognize, obviously, I know all the people who performed, but I didn't see the show itself. And so I I think I can relate to that. It was a 90s nostalgia is... How it was being described. Well, you know, looking forward, you know, we've talked about the Super Bowl the, the yesterday or a few days ago as this episode drops. I want to share some exciting news about a new series that we're launching here at the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's College. One of the initiatives this semester and moving forward is we're trying to do all of our events hybrid so that folks like many of our listeners can uh, tune in and watch live streams of lectures and presentations and programming. And uh, this spring, we're launching a new series called the Ex Libris Author Lecture Series. And every semester, we'll have three or four authors come to campus and talk about their New work. They're new books, typically, about things related to the mission of the center, so spirituality, theology, sociology, and the like, particularly at the intersection of uh, religious life and, and faith. And so our very first lecturer is actually today, the day this episode drops, and it's Dr. Jessica Koblenz, who I know was a recent guest or soon-to-be guest on David Dult's other program, Things Not Seen talking about her new book, Dust in the Blood, uh, A Theology of Living with Depression. And so that's going to be at five o'clock Eastern time tonight. If you go to stmarys.edu slash spirituality, you'll be able to find on our events page a link to the Zoom webinar where it's free and open to the public. If you're in the South Bend or greater Chicago area and want to come in person, you're most welcome, and you can find all that information as well on the website. So we'll have two more coming up, some exciting stuff. I'll say more about that as the season goes on, but I'm really happy to share that and very excited about this program.
0: Yeah, listeners can uh, find my conversation with Dr. Koblenz coming up in the next couple of weeks on Things Not Seen. I also want to make sure to mention that there is that event with Pope Francis, co-sponsored by the Institute of Pastoral Studies, happening on February 24th. You can find out more about that at luc.edu slash Pope Francis if you're interested. On our episode today, we're going to be talking about three topics. We're going to be talking about the recent lawsuit brought by the organization Catholic Vote about the southern border of the United States. We're going to be talking about the firing of a couple of advisors of student journalists at a Catholic school, and we're going to be welcoming our guest, Father Brian Massingale, talking to us about the recent book bans around racial issues that have been happening across the country. So all that's coming up here on The Francis Effect. Please do stay with us.
2: Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlump, and I'm here today with David Dalt and Father Dan Horan. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. In early February, the Michigan-based organization Catholic Vote announced that it was bringing suit against the Biden administration— in order to obtain possible records of communications between federal agencies and Catholic organizations working on the southern border of the United States. Brian Birch, the president of Catholic Vote, released a statement on February 9th that declared, quote, American Catholics deserve to know the full extent of the U.S. government's role in funding and coordinating with Catholic Church-affiliated agencies at the border, and what role these agencies played in the record surge of illegal immigrants over the past year. Unquote. News reports have called Catholic Vote a nonprofit organization, but the matter is more complex. There is part of the organization that functions as a tax exempt organization in the traditional sense, but Catholic Vote also has an advocacy arm that's designed to push specific policy goals. Some of the organizations likely to be affected by this lawsuit include Lupe, the Organization for Migrant Workers' Rights, co founded by Cesar Chavez, and Catholic Charities of the Rio Grande Valley, headed by Missionary of Jesus' sister Norma Pimentel. David, you were working on a podcast story on the border not too long ago. What should we be thinking of all this?
0: Yeah, right before the pandemic hit, I was traveling from New Orleans, Louisiana, down to the border there in the Rio Grande Valley. It was a 1,500-mile trip that we took. I was working with Lisa Sharon Harper, who for a long time was with the Sojourners organization and now heads up her own organization called Freedom Road, and we were doing a story that was looking at the historical links between slave labor, convict labor and migrant labor and it was a very powerful experience for me but we we ended it by having meetings at these organizations so I was physically at Lupe and then I was in the offices of Catholic charities of the Rio Grande Valley meeting with the 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 leaders of that, including Sister Pimentel. Now, one of the things that I want to stress is that unlike Catholic vote— which is an arm of an organization called Fidelis that has millions of dollars available to it such that it occasionally tries to bid to put ads in the Super Bowl, these organizations are small and they're devoting the majority of their revenues towards helping people there on the border. I I note that because having to then take some of their resources and take time to participate in this lawsuit or to defend themselves if if this lawsuit develops, that's going to be a burden on these organizations because they are small organizations working with small budgets, helping people with every dollar that they have. And I think that this is by design. Like this is designed to create a situation where there's an undue stress placed on these small organizations. And as we know, this tactic works because when you attack a a small organization's finances, oftentimes they have a brutal choice of do we continue in this hobbled fashion or do we fold? So I think that all this is part of a calculated effort, but I want listeners to understand particularly that when we hear about Catholic Vote, as you mentioned, being a nonprofit organization, one part of it is nonprofit, but there's a part of it where revenues are put towards this kind of policy advocacy. And that's something sometimes that doesn't get talked about enough. So there's a lot here that we can dig into.
1: Well, and it's important. I mean, you're, you're saying everything that you're, correctly, David, as I see it, but just to dig a little bit deeper in what the political agenda is of the Catholic Vote organization or catholicvote.com. Part of their focus is really far-right Republican interests, and this is not a sort of—it's not Catholic in any sense, whether you understand it in the colloquial sense of the word Catholic meaning inclusive or throughout the whole, or is in Roman Catholic, this is a— politically partisan organization with very narrowly defined agenda foci. For instance, why is this a concern at the southern border Under and why are they targeting those, as you rightly say, David, who are nonprofit organizations who are working to live the gospel, to provide clothes to the naked and shelter to the homeless and food to the hungry, when during the four years of the Trump administration, during their abhorrent anti-life policies on the border and the deportation of so many people and the separation of children from their families, they were absolutely silent, if not supportive of the administration's policies. And, and Heidi, I, you know, I, I seem to recall NCR doing coverage of Catholic Vote. Is this the same organization that was doing all that geofencing around Catholic parishes in the previous election to advocate for the Trump administration?
2: Yes, exactly. So astute readers will remember that I did a story about them back before the 2020 election, or this was even back, I think, in 2018. They were using the practice of geofencing, which is gathering data from users' cell phones. But uh, what they were doing was gathering data from people with, while they were going to church. And the idea is they wanted to connect with churchgoers because, ch- specifically, in states where the vote was expected to be close, so m- midwestern states like Michigan, Wisconsin, um, Indiana, and Ohio, and the The idea was that a regular churchgoer was likely to vote Republican. So they were gathering this data. And, you know, so many of us have gotten used to our cell phones being this open source of information about ourselves being shared with lots of folks. But I think some people were offended that they were not safe from that at church. So. Yes, this is an organization that we've been following closely. They have a lot of funding from a number of conservative Catholics and connections with other right-wing groups, and they're very politically involved. One portion of their organization is, as you mentioned, David, a political advocacy organization. This is clearly a nuisance suit, but it does Really shocked me because I think I thought that Sister Norma and the amazing work that she does at the Hope Border Institute and with Catholic Charities of the Rio Grande Valley was something that you know was universally admired by Catholics even on the left and the right. So for them to go after her as well as Bishop Danny Flores, it was really surprising to me because they are among some of the, the best representatives, I think, of Catholic social teaching.
0: I mentioned this trip that I took with the Freedom Road organization run by Lisa Sharon Harper. We started at a, a preserved plantation outside of New Orleans, and then we went to Sugar Land, Texas, and I stood in a mass grave where convicts were buried as they dropped under brutal labor conditions. Basically, using the, the 14th Amendment, which says that you can't enslave anybody unless they are imprisoned – Texas made an economy out of basically selling prison labor and working the laborers until they died and then just basically burying them where they stood. And then we went down to the border, and what we saw were conditions oftentimes that were very similar to those that I had seen historically outside of New Orleans and historically outside of Brownsville, Texas. Now, what I want to highlight in this language from Catholic Vote is they keep using phrases like disruption at the border or chaos at the border. I just want listeners to understand that when Anglo-capitalism, when this kind of exploitative colonial capitalism that has used the labor of human bodies for centuries to build enormous profits, anytime that begins to be disrupted, it's well-documented that this is the kind of language that gets used. It's, oh, they're disrupting. These are outside agitators. This is, you know, there's some kind of conspiracy here to disrupt our way of life and to bring chaos to our peaceful community. Well, it's not a peaceful community. It's an exploitative community. And the language that is being used by Catholic Vote is trigger language. It's historical language of colonial occupiers. I just want to make sure that is known. And as a person of Catholic faith who wants to see the dignity in every person and who wants to see subsidiarity as part of the way in which decisions are made for communities, I do I dislike an organization in Michigan coming and using funds to try and come and take the activities of Sister Norma and others, as you're saying, who are really living out Catholic social teaching, and to try and make that more difficult for helping the least of these on our borders.
1: What end? I mean, is there anything other than, you know, a political ideological agenda at play here? even as I look at the reports, it's unclear to me. And you noted, David, that some of the language is intentionally vague. It's There is a signaling going on here, You know, this idea of, quote, record surge of illegal immigrants. Record surge in what sense? Of folks entering into the country, of folks being deported, folks being detained at the border. The, the, the character of what's going on seems to be absent. And with that in mind, I'm wondering, I'm like, what's the superficial argument, right? What's the the kind of BS claim that's being used to to justify these nuisance uh, lawsuits? And when we talk about nuisance lawsuits, we're talking about ways of distracting both in terms of media attention and coverage and public perception, but also financially disrupting these nonprofit organizations because Catholic Vote is as has been said already, very well funded by right-wing extremists and donors and you know here are people who are attending to the poorest of the poor and the most vulnerable in our midst living the gospel in the catholic faith tradition who are not doing they're not there's no political agenda at the border in these nonprofits these catholic services organizations it's a matter of caring for the life. In this case, I I would go so far as to say that Catholic Vote, the irony in that name is that this is one of the most anti-life organizations and certainly one of the most anti-life actions that one could imagine in this case. Because these organizations like Sister Norma's and Catholic Charities on the Border, you know, they're caring for the life of women and men and children. And so I guess I'm trying to wrap my head around, maybe thinking back, Heidi, to what you were saying earlier, which is the work of people like sister norma who has been recognized by the holy father himself for the good work that she's done in living the gospel is the most catholic the most pro life thing you can imagine so what is what's the end game is it is there anything other than political political agendas at play
2: well i wish i knew but it does seem to me that they're trying to bring up the issue of immigration so the U.S. bishops who maybe are in disagreement about various more conservative or liberal issues, the one issue that they all agree on, or at least agreed was important to address here in our country, was immigration and to treat immigrants and and refugees and migrants with respect and to even possibly expand the ways in which we allow them to come to this country. But then what you have is a group of primarily lay people. So this is not a a clergy or a bishops led organization who are, you know, to the right of, you know, even the cath the institutional Catholic church on this issue or on this issue that has been a bit more of a unifier, even among Catholics. So yeah, I, i wouldn't be surprised CatholicVote.org, I don't think, is a huge fan of Pope Francis to begin with. So it doesn't surprise me that they would pick on somebody who Francis has praised. So I think the fact that much of this is around the issue of immigration is worrying and concerning. But for the most part, I do think it's just an attempt to further carve out their identity as being more aligned with the Republican Party and the far right in the Republican Party than being aligned with the Catholic Church. So this is part of a, a trend we keep seeing.
0: I think I also want to highlight for listeners that Texas, in many ways, is a canary in the coal mine on a number of issues. Just this morning on NPR, there was a story about, and I'm going to use this phrase and then define it, judge shopping. And what that is, where you begin to file lawsuits and petitions against actions of the Biden administration in various courts that you think will be friendly or will receive a friendly hearing to your petition, and you just do it in multiple places until one of them sticks and a judge begins to block an action of the Biden administration. And so this is happening all over Texas right now, where these lawsuits are being filed in multiple jurisdictions, hoping that something sticks. And so what we're finding is whether we're talking about immigration issues or whether we're talking about other issues around mask mandates or health issues, what we're seeing is Texas is in many ways ground zero for a type of legislative attack that is multi-pronged and is happening. It's very well funded in many jurisdictions. It's able to bring lawsuits again and again until something begins to get traction in the court system. And so this is part of a coordinated strategy, and that's what I want to stress again and again to listeners is that, you know, what we're seeing with Catholic vote is not happenstance. It's not disconnected from these other right-wing efforts. It's all designed to try and bring down a certain type of safety net and protection of basic decency for people that are struggling and oftentimes are in dire need.
1: I think it's important, too. We we all need to check ourselves sometimes and take a step back when it comes to taking things at face value. And so, you know, this ideological and politically partisan organization with a very specific agenda identifies itself as Catholic. Now, I'll be the first to admit as somebody who is a columnist at National Catholic reporter that we at NCR also get this sort of critique, you know, what constitutes your Catholicity and who who authorizes who can be called Catholic and and whatnot. Truth be told, pretty much anybody in the United States, you know, you can create an organization and use that term in most cases. And so I I say that only because I think a lot of well-meaning, well-intentioned people oftentimes looking for resources or looking for news sources or something like this might go to the internet or might have somebody share some sort of information with them and see catholicvote.org and think, well, this must be an authoritative body of the Roman Catholic Church in the United States or somewhere else. And I think it's important for us to realize you need to be wise interpreters of the material that's set before you. They are not Catholic. That's just, it's, they're not endorsed by any formal body of the Catholic Church. It's a ploy, and that's important to recognize. And how do you know that they're not Catholic? Well, let's look at what the agenda is here and and contrast that with what the Scripture says. So, you know, as Catholics, we need to go back to the normative source of our theology, which is sacred Scripture. What is the message of every single Hebrew Bible or Old Testament prophet? It's It's a challenge to those in authority not to... Gang up against the migrant, the refugee, the stranger, the alien, the orphan, the widow, but quite the opposite. You know, the people that are doing the kinds of things that Catholic vote and their allies are advocating for are exactly the kind of people that God condemns time and time again in the Bible. And we see that all the more clearly and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. You know, just this past Sunday, we heard from Luke's Gospel, the Sermon on the Plain, with the blessed are those and woe to those. And I think it's important for us to put this in in contemporary perspective, that if Jesus were on a mountain or a plane or an airplane, for that matter, like Pope Francis often is given press conferences, Jesus might very well say, with even harsher words, I'd imagine, woe to Catholic vote and those who support them. Because this sort of behavior, this sort of action is against Covenant and will of God.
2: Whoa, preach there, Father Dan. I I agree with you 100%. The only good thing that I saw coming out of this was that it was so blatantly sort of putting out there what CatholicVote.org is about. So I think. People who support Sister Norma and and many of the good things that she does or or who support Catholic charities throughout the country and all the, the great work that Catholic charities does would hopefully be able to see through this. And our piece that we ran at NCR, and we can include a link to that in the show notes, talked about the number of people who were pushing back when they saw this news. And we were grateful to have Sister Norma and Bishop Flores both respond to these charges immediately after they came out. And of course, sister Norma quoted Matthew 25 at the end and said, that's all we're doing here. And that's what the gospel calls us to do As as you said, father, Dan,
0: And so we know that listeners to this program also have a concern for the least of these among us, which is the people that are being talked about in Matthew 25. I am aware that we will come back to these kinds of stories again, but for right now, we need to leave the conversation here. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Father Dan Horan and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. In December, two teachers at Regis Jesuit High School in Aurora, Colorado, were fired because, as faculty advisors to the student magazine, they allowed publication of a student's essay that supported abortion rights. As NCR recently reported, the principal first praised the essay as, quote, provocative, unquote. But after complaints came to the school board and the Archdiocese of Denver, the two teachers were fired for, quote, poor judgment and personal misconduct, end quote, and for allegedly bringing scandal to the school. Maria Lynch, one of the fired teachers, told NCR that she is pro-life and that she frequently shared those beliefs with her students and colleagues. But Lynch said she also welcomed challenges to the church's teaching on life issues. She told NCR, quote, I want my students to be able to express their questions and doubts in class and in writing so that we can engage in a real conversation with them, end quote. The Constitution prevents administrators at government-run public schools from censoring student media. But because the First Amendment only prevents the government and those acting on its behalf from denying free speech rights, students at private institutions do not have the same rights to freedom of expression that students at public institutions do. Heidi, in your recent column in NCR, you argue that Catholic schools should extend free expression rights to student journalists. Why do you think that's a good idea for the student journalists and for the church?
2: Well, it probably won't surprise people that as a journalist, I'm for the First Amendment and for uh, you know, the rights to free speech and a free press. When I was working at a private college, not a Catholic one, and was advisor to the student media there, I was sent for some training. And one of the first things I learned was about how at private schools, student journalists are not covered, and and too often what that turned into was a chance for the administration or others to try to censor them. It is true that in some states, they've tried to enact laws that do protect student journalists, even at private schools, but that is not the case in Colorado. So I just think this is a, a bad idea. It's not what journalism is about, but I also think it's just disastrous for us as a church that we would you know, send the message that having a conversation or even a debate or a discussion about something is off the table. The teacher that you quoted there said she herself is pro-life and would defend church teaching and like to try to engage students in this conversation. And it seems that the principal was initially interested in that as well. He wanted to have some sort of response run in the student publication. But then once the complaints started coming to the school and to the Archdiocese of Denver, which um, people may or may not know is headed by a, a pretty conservative bishop, Bishop Aquila, then it seems like once those entities got involved, that's when the firings happened. So I just think at a time when our church is trying to say, hey, the most important thing we want to do right now is have this spirit of synodality where we all listen respectfully to one another and try to uh, you know, talk about where we're coming from, what our experiences are, Of course, obviously, we want to always be clear about what the church teaches and why the church teaches what it does. But the idea that you can't even have a debate or a conversation about something is just going to turn off more and more young people to the church because they're looking for places where they can think out loud, talk out loud, write out loud about the things they're trying to come to understand.
1: I think it's also important to realize, regardless of who does and doesn't, benefit from more explicit protections under the First Amendment and the right of free speech, because private institutions, you know, as you rightly said, Heidi, there are these kind of wiggle areas. And and we see this play out in other sort of court decisions around what constitutes ministry and it's, you know, what protections under federal employment protection apply in Catholic schools and other private institutions. All of that notwithstanding – I think it's important for us to realize that, you know, here we are talking about an educational institution. This isn't like somebody who wrote something that was published in a parish bulletin. School is a place for dialogue and exposure to a wide range of ideas and for learning and for clarification of thought. And so the first thing that comes to mind for me, too, is, you know, how important it is to recognize that the recourse to authority is the weakest argument somebody can make. And that's essentially... A misunderstanding of how authority works in the church. There's a sort of secular authority that U.S. bishops in particular, and I would say the Archbishop of Denver is exercising, and other Catholic institutional leaders, maybe principals or superintendents, they seem to mistake what authority is in terms of its theological valence with this recourse to authority as uh, as an argument for why somebody should or shouldn't do something. You do it because I say so. That's not actually what authority means in the Catholic Church, so that's worth noting. And it's also, you know, something that is not going to help form our young people, especially Gen Z. Gen Z, as I'm fond of saying, and many people have heard me lecture about this and and hear me talk about this perhaps on this podcast in an earlier episode, Gen Z has a really high what I would call BS detector. They are very savvy about being spun to, about they have no time as a generation for these arguments that have recourse to authority only without any kind of substance or without any kind of background or foundation. And so, you know, I, I think it's going to backfire when you don't allow students to explore a variety of perspectives and views. And that leads me to another point that that I think is worth making, which is a bit of a rhetorical question, but to to the Archbishop of Denver, to those who got really upset about this student op-ed, is to ask the question, what are you afraid of? because if you embrace what Jesus Christ says in the gospel that the truth will set you free well then if this is a falsehood if this is somehow untrue then let the conversation proceed and allow the truth of catholic teaching allow the truth that may surface through the holy spirit's interaction and in- you know, counter arguments that are posted in the student paper or in maybe a a different forum or some kind of dialogue, public dialogue or session in school, let the conversation proceed. Because then if you believe in the truth and the truth will set you free, if you believe that what the position of the church as you understand it is correct, then that should rise to the top. What happens here is a chilling effect that, as you said, Heidi, stops the conversation. It's not just about constitutionally protected rights. It's about how people think, form their critical imagination, come to understand themselves and the world, and if you just tell people do this because I say so, and you can't say this because it's wrong because I say so, that's not going to get anywhere and it will very likely backfire. I think everything that you're saying, Dan, is right on, and
0: it raises some questions for me, and with your indulgence, the both of you, I'm going to play devil's tradvocate for a moment. Uh, (laughs) That's a good (laughs) neologism. So we've been talking for most of this conversation about kind of the right to free expression, and if you hang out in conversations with more traditionalist-thinking Catholics, you will occasionally butt up against the phrase, error— Has no rights. And the notion that somehow the Catholic Church should even entertain a view that is against its teaching in the public sphere is. Swatted away. All right. So that is what I would consider if, if I were in a kind of teaching mode and wanted to use a, a technical term, that would be an example of the ecclesia docens, the teaching church that sort of says, this is what's true and this is what's false. But contrasted to that, as we've said many times on this program, is a church of synodality. And again, to use a technical term, an ecclesia dicens, a church that is willing to listen. And so I what we see here is not just a question about what can Catholic teaching should be and what Catholic teaching should be promulgated, but also a question about literally what the Church is. I'd be interested in y'all's thoughts on that.
1: Well, there's David Dalt dropping some uh, good ecclesiological (laughs) lingo there for our listeners. That's a bonus. You got your Latin phrases. But no, you're exactly right, and I don't uh, think—on the one hand, I actually don't disagree with the claim. The problem is how the claim is applied and understood. So, you know, this idea of Ecclesia docens and Ecclesia decens, they're two sides of the same coin, right? And it's part of how revelation is understood and how doctrine is formed. And and this is all, for the nerds out there, this is the focal point or the the theme of fundamental theology as, as a systematic discipline. But it is dynamic. It is not linear. It's not... God reveals in some sort of magical book that comes down, whether you imagine it as the catechism or something else, that's handed to the pope, and the pope hands it to the cardinals, and the cardinals hand it to the bishops, and the bishops hand it to the priests, and there's a hole in the ground, and the green grass grows all around. It's not that sort of thing. It's much, much more dynamic. It's much more perichoretic. There's another bonus term for you, the way the Spirit moves in a Trinitarian sense. But this is also what Pope Francis is elevating following the Second Vatican Council, going back to the ancient tradition of synodality, that there's an ongoing conversation. The Spirit speaks through the people of God who have census fide, who as the whole body of Christ receives what you're saying, David, in terms of the teaching uh, office of the Church. But then there's also a sharing that rises back up. The other thing I want to add is there has often been this recourse to a kind of blind authority or feeditism in the church which is which is not authentic it is not genuine to catholicism though it's present throughout and and historically and i my column last week in ncr i give some examples of how just because something is understood as a minority view or minority tradition at a certain point that is perceived to be wrong and oftentimes pushed to the margins or silenced as in the case of somebody like Father John Courtney Murray at the dawn of the Second Vatican Council who who said actually religious liberty is not antithetical to Catholicism, and therefore the structure of political governance in the United States is not, you know, abhorrent or some kind of aberration from what God intends. In fact, these can work together. And he was silenced for that by the Vatican before the council. Then after the council, it becomes official church teaching that religious liberty is a human right. When people say the church doesn't change, I'm like, you have got to read something from 50 years ago because you are so (laughs) clueless about this. But on another note, I talk about the 16th century and the conversations around around the full humanity of native peoples in North and South America and it was people on the outlying sort of periphery people like the Dominican friar Bartolomé de las Casas who advocated very much upstream against great headwinds to say yeah these people all human beings are human beings it's so fundamental and yet that was a minority view that was in effect silenced by you know colonial and ecclesial interests on this front, I think – I don't know that this – I'm not trying to suggest that the student's op-ed is reflective of a minority view that is true. I'm just saying that if we silence the conversation and freeze the discourse, we will never come to know what the truth is because if we played that role throughout all of Christian history – the catholic church would still support chattel slavery it would still say that religious liberty is against church teaching which by the way you right wingers who love to cry religious liberty to fire lgbtq folks you would be against church teaching because religious liberty would not be upheld and we could go on usury you know no catholics could work in the banking industry hate to break it to you wall street folks and the nap of institute fellows you know we can go down the line All of those things that you benefit from and that you recognize to be true are because church teaching changes and develops over time when we're open to the working of the Holy Spirit in this dynamic process that, David, you outlined. And when we freeze this conversation, we freeze the working of the Holy Spirit.
2: Well, I'm going to leave the ecclesiology and the Latin to you guys, but I can tell you that the problem is when you have an intersection and you have a Catholic organization that's also trying to do education or trying to do journalism. So, you know, I get that it's a Catholic school. So there is an ecclesiology to that because it is a church institution, in this case, a Jesuit institution, but it's also a school. It's also a place that's trying to do education. And if you're going to have student journalism, then you have to take into account journalistic principles and values as well. If you want to say, hey, journalism and Catholicism can't go together because we can't have any freedom of expression, well, then at least just be honest about that. Don't try to have a student publication and then tell them they can only, you know, reprint church teaching in it. That's not journalism. And, you know, we see that in other places when. Church organizations are the sponsors of journalism and why, of course, at NCR, we value our independence so highly. But that is the problem. And of course, there's going to be a tension there, and uh, you kind of have to work that out. But I do think, you know, the the Catholic school previously, Regis, had some journalistic ethical code that they were trying to do that reflected the kind of, of thing that most high school or college journalist educators would say is necessary to do the practice of journalism well in a school. They've since pulled those and are, are rethinking them. So I wouldn't be surprised to see perhaps student media go away in some of these organizations if they are going to re- resort to that that argument by authority alone, as you talked about, Dan.
0: Heidi, I'd be curious, as you're thinking about this, I'm sure that there are other Catholic schools and organizations out there that may be struggling with these same sorts of questions. What would you suggest to guide or even encourage them as they're making what must be some very difficult decisions?
2: Well, I don't know at the high school level how involved these faculty advisors would be, but when I was at the college level, there's like a Journalism Education Association, and they have guidelines. There are a couple organizations that try to protect the free speech of the student journalists, and so sometimes those organizations can be helpful in creating your own code of ethics or guidelines for your school. Yeah, but the problem, of course, is when you're talking about these private institutions, the law is not on their side. So we have to appeal to a higher law and to these other values.
1: Maybe it would be better for institutions like uh, Regis to rename their student publication, not a student newspaper, but a student propaganda publication, because that's essentially (laughs) what's going on here, right? If you can only promote a party line without any sort of free conversation, then it's propaganda. Maybe it's good propaganda. Propaganda in itself is not bad, but it's the party line only. That's not journalism.
0: Well, as these stories continue to develop, I'm sure that we'll return to them. But for right now, we're going to move on. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm not the one you. one you.
1: Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with David Dalt and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. In recent months, lawmakers have introduced bills in more than 30 states that seek to ban books that engage topics of race, sex, and gender identity from being taught or even cataloged in school libraries. While there has been a history of book banning in the United States in past decades, those efforts were more more often than not fueled by religious zealotry. What is distinctive about this resurgence of state-sponsored censorship is the political tenor of the effort and the heightened outrage fomented by rapid communication in the digital age. According to a New York Times interview, Christopher M. Finan, the executive director of the National Coalition Against Censorship, said he has not seen this level of challenges since the 1980s when a similarly energized conservative base embraced the issue. This time, however, that energy is colliding with an effort to publish and circulate more diverse books, as well as social media, which can amplify complaints about certain titles. This push to ban books that address the complexity and unflattering facts of American history, particularly around race and white supremacy, has also led to a new kind of puritanical pedagogy, with right-wing activists and parents decrying books in schools that acknowledge diversity in sexual orientation and gender identity. Here to discuss with us this current trend across the United States is Father Brian Massengale who is the James and Nancy Buckman Chair in Applied Christian Ethics at Fordham University and is currently serving as the President of the Society of Christian Ethics. Father Brian, welcome back to the Francis Effect podcast. Maybe we can begin by asking, how do you understand what is going on with this increasing trend to literally outlaw certain books in school districts and states? And why do you think this is an important subject for Catholics? Uh, thanks, Dan. It's good to be with you guys again. I got interested
3: in this because I was um, of the whole debate over critical race theory that is sweeping, you know, many of our many school districts across the country. And it's important to understand that critical race theory is something that's never been taught in grade schools or high schools. It's a, it was a rather obscure academic theory that was, that's trying to account for how racism is a systemic reality in American society. And it was only discussed in rarefied legal circles. But since 2020, it's been weaponized and used by the religious right and by conservative social forces that see it as, as a, an existential threat, and those are their words, to the American way of life. Now, with this kind of hysteria over critical race theory, it had in hand with that, it's done this effort to ban certain books from grade schools and from high schools. And so I was interested to see, well, which books are they concerned about? And what really piqued my attention was the fact that it wasn't limited to books dealing with race and racism, but there's a far deeper or more broader agenda that's here. As you hinted in your opening, it's not just an effort to ban books dealing with race and racism, but books dealing with LGBTQ issues, books dealing with with women and gender equality. And what also struck me was that it's a particular kind of book that's being banned. And so when I did some more research on this, i drawn to what's going on in Texas in particular. And there I found a list of over 850 books that are the subject of interest. And when you look at them and they include titles such as Isabel Wilkerson's book on Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, Ibram Kennedy's book, Stamped from the Very Beginning, and How to Be a White Racist. But there are also books dealing with the Indian Removal Act, or the Trail of Tears of Native Americans, Right Fragility by D- Robin DiAngelo. And what are even novels of Tom Tony Morrison's, such so as Beloved and The Bluest Eye? What you're seeing here is not just an effort to control education. What you're seeing is an effort to, in my view, to rewrite American history and to do it from a lens of not wanting to make white people uncomfortable it's very interesting that when you read the, the motives for this legislation is that they're very they say they want to free children from psychological distress. Well which children from psychological distress becomes the obvious question here because they also want to ban um, books dealing with trans issues or LGBTQ issues And so it's very clear that what they want to do is put forward, a certain understanding of what it means to be American, what it means to be Christian, in a sense, that that they want to rewrite the history of America as being a white, Christian, straight narrative. And they want to cast anything that disagrees with this as being anti-American. Now, where this falls in, why is it a concern for Catholics? I think it's a concern for Catholics because this kind of nationalistic project is not immune or is found in some quarters of Catholicism. When you see that these books are broadly construed as being socialist, quote unquote. But then you know, I think of the infamous address that was given by Archbishop Arch- Arch- Gomez of Los Angeles, where he basically derides certain social justice movements as being Marxist-inspired or of having a kind of a kind of socialism or a socialist agenda, you can see that there isn't much daylight between the efforts that are taking place as 30 states of the union to regulate what's happening in classrooms for a certain political agenda and the resonances that political agenda has in certain sectors of the Catholic church.
1: It, it seems to me, too, I'm, I'm reminded when you mentioned, you know, whose discomfort are we talking about? I, I couldn't help but think back to last week in, in a Washington Post column by the columnist Jonathan Capehart, who wrote a piece with the title, What About Black Students? Quote Discomfort. And I think, you know, it speaks to exactly what you're saying. You know, there is a very clear agenda here. It is, in a literal sense, a whitewashing of history and a protection of what, as you say, D'Angelo talks about in terms of white fragility, or Carol Anderson talks about in terms of white rage. And I guess, you know, I'm also reminded of the late Father Cyprian Davis, who talked about the erasure of Black Catholic history in our collective imagination as a church in the United States. You know, and I'm wondering, too, as an ethicist, it seems to me like there's a way in which this is clearly morally dubious, right? There's a clear ethical issue here. Yeah, I think it raises the question of the ethics of memory
3: and the ethics of of remembrance and whose memory is being preserved, whose memory is being advanced. For example, in Florida, which is another epicenter of this kind of movement, one of the founders there, Rick Stevens, who is the director of the Florida Citizens Alliance, he says that. You don't need to take sides in teaching about American history and to say that one race purposefully did it, unquote. How do you teach Americans in this history of American enslavement and not say that it is white people who both formed these laws, who were participants in the institution, who sanctioned this for the benefit, the economic benefit and the psychological benefit of white Americans? But again, it's a matter of how do we tell the story and whose story is being told and to what end. And so the ethics of memory are very important here, that societies are formed by the stories they tell, but also by the stories that they suppress. And I think this is what we're seeing here is a deliberate attempt to suppress certain memories from the educational system All to the end of, and I quote here, so that students don't, quote, feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any form of psychological distress, unquote. But it makes the question, whose psychological distress? It also raises the question, and this is another parallel why this is germane to the Catholic Church. One of my strong critiques of Catholic engagement with racism is that it's, it's often formed in a way. So it doesn't cause white people to feel discomfort or feel uncomfortable. I look, I think, the bishop's last pastoral letter in twenty eighteen, "Open Wide Our Hearts," and you read that document, and you can't help but think that this was a document that was written from a white perspective and written in such a way that white people would not feel overly uncomfortable or discomforted by the reality of racism or by their need to actually uh, take a proactive stance against it. So I think that there are some strong resonances, unfortunate resonances, between the Catholic approach to racial justice in general and what we see in these efforts that are taking place in states around the country.
2: I'm struck by what you said about how the church engages uh, with racism, as you're saying, sometimes in ways that is not very prophetic, and especially by church leaders, including bishops. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. I'm thinking about the article that you wrote for us at NCR about the assumptions of white privilege in the midst of everything back in June of 2020. That was the most read article at NCR for the whole year. And I think there is a real yearning on the part of Christians and Catholics to hear someone say something challenging and prophetic about what we need to do about race in this country and to look around and see the ramifications of what racism means for the lives of so many of our brothers and sisters. So on the one hand, it's not happening, but yet when it does happen, it seems like there's a yearning for that.
3: Whenever I give a public talk or have written an article like the one I wrote for NCR, I get lots of emails and some of them are negative, as you would expect, but others are are basically a request for, you know, information. Where do I go to get more information? How do I learn more about this? And I get those from Catholics. And it's amazing to me about the ethics of memory, how few white Catholics are even familiar with a seminal resource such as Cyprian Davis's A History of Black Catholics in the United States. That book was published back in 1992, I believe. And yet it's amazing how many Catholics aren't even familiar with that part of of the American Catholic story. And so I think that there's a real problem in America about how do we even tell our own story? I think in many cases, even though professional historians challenge the understanding of us being an immigrant church solely or being an Irish church solely, that is discourse that's limited to professional stories that hasn't yet filtered down into the pews and certainly not into Catholic educational institutions. One of the, I teach at Fordham University and I teach a course on Martin Malcolm Baldwin and the church, and the one constant refrain that I'm getting from my students who are graduates of Catholic high schools is that I've never heard this. I never heard about Jim Crow. I never heard about Catholic participation in the civil rights movement. I never heard that Catholics had segregated churches. I never heard that Black Catholics had to receive communion after white Catholics. Uh, I never heard that you know, that black persons were not welcome in seminaries or in convents. We as Catholics have not done a very good job of telling our story in its shadow and in its sinfulness. And so as a result, Americans are ill-prepared for the deep conversations that need to take place for racial justice, but Catholics are also ill-prepared because we don't even have access to our story. We're not telling our story. We're telling a very whitewashed story. And I use those words literally. It is a whitewashed story. And it's not, we don't tell the story for the purpose of wallowing in guilt. But I think it's a very Catholic thing in our sacramental practice. We even admit that in order to be restored to right relationship to God and to each other, we have to own what we've done wrong. This is the whole logic behind the sacrament of penance. And so as Catholics, we need to be, I think, even more vigilant and insistent about telling a full story of our history in order to honor not only the truth of our history, but in order to be in right relationship with God and to be faithful to our own sacramental practice.
0: I think that, Father Massingale, this is something that needs to be stressed, and I know that our listeners know this, but it bears repeating. So Black Catholics are Catholics. Hispanic Latino Catholics are Catholics. LGBTQ Catholics are Catholics. Catholics that vote Democratic are Catholics. But oftentimes, and I'm thinking about this in the wake of the Synod on the Amazon, there is this rhetoric that gets deployed that Catholicism is only white and a certain type of conservative political bent, and that anything else is somehow deficiently Catholic. And I'm wondering how you can counsel us as people who are trying to communicate in Catholic spheres, how can we more clearly demonstrate and communicate that Catholicism encompasses and embraces the variety that you're talking about? Because I think that message is getting lost. It's certainly getting lost at the level of the USCCB, but it's also getting lost in social media and casual Catholic discourse. How can we do better? I think one of the ways in which we start to do better is by saying that, what
3: does the word Catholic mean? The word means universal. The word, the word Catholic means all. The word Catholic has embedded in it a sense of inclusiveness. One of the ways I describe my ministry is I say that I want to work to make the Catholic Church be what it says it is. I want the Catholic Church to be genuinely Catholic. And I think that you're right that I think what has happened all too often is that we've had this series of litmus tests. That you have to, that we have to pass in order to be Catholic. And they're usually not about creedal issues or not about doctrinal issues. They're really about political issues. And so you're Catholic if you vote a certain way. You're Catholic if you believe certain things about how the best strategies for how to preserve the sanctity of life. And notice how I put that. Catholics are not in disagreement about the sanctity of life. I think I have not met any Catholic who says that life is not sacred. I think where Catholics may disagree with each other is how do we best preserve the sanctity of life in a pluralistic society? Now, that's a debate that's worth having. But I think the way we you often phrase the question is that, well, you're either for life or you're for abortion. And that's not, you know, that's not a genuinely Catholic approach to the issue. So I think one of the things I think we have to do is reclaim the word Catholic, and to say, what is Catholic? What do we really mean by Catholic? And to go back to the root meaning of Catholic, the Holocaust meaning universal. And do we really want to be a universal church or do we want to be a sect? And I think we know there's a difference between a church and a sect is self-consciously saying that you have to be uniform in, and not only in your broad scope of belief, but also in the deep down granular particulars of practice and belief. And I think that's a very sectarian kind of where we want to look upon the world as being something that needs to be opposed and even fled from, whereas a church wants to be engaging the world and seeing that its best wisdom is reflective of the wisdom and the creative vision of God. And that's a very, that's a Catholic approach. I fear that we're not always being very Catholic, but much more sectarian and seeing the world as being a hostile, suspicious place rather than a place with genuine human engagement and and encountering
1: of God. We know that your time is very precious and we're grateful that you've taken the time to be with us. But before you go, this might be a good segue as you're talking about the sort of universality of Catholicism, its enculturated reality in all kinds of communities and persons that it invokes this idea or this question, you know, why does anyone want to be a part of this, you know, institution? And I know, for one, I don't want to be a part of a very narrowly defined sect, as you said. And I embrace and celebrate my Catholic faith. In fact, I will speak on behalf of Heidi and David, and I'm sure you resonate with this too, Father Brian, that that we're here and we do this podcast and the other work each of us do in our own context because of our love of the faith and our love of the church. Which brings me to a question, as we're recording this on Monday, this will air on Wednesday, you're the talk of the journalism town in the Associated Press feature story about you as a black gay Catholic priest who is a professor and a minister and i know that the journalist who wrote the piece had spent a fair amount of time with you interviewing you but like with all pieces no matter how long these articles end up being there are things that are left out and there are ways in which quotes and presentations can skew different perspectives and so i'm just curious first of all you know there are things that were that appear in this story that i'm sure many of our listeners will have seen by the time our podcast is released but, you know, I think one thing that doesn't get addressed is exactly what you've just been talking about with a great amount of passion, your love for the church, your commitment to the church. And so my question to you is, you know, in light of all the very real and reasonable things that you are in, as a person of faith and faithful to the church, call out and say, these are not right. We're not living what it is we say we are. Why do you still stay?
3: That's a great question. I'm glad you asked it because when I was doing the interview, and so there's something I did, didn't make it into. So probably it was one of those things that probably got edited, cut on um, the, the cutting room floor, as we would say in, in a film industry. A question: He posed the question, given how often the church has broken your heart, why are, are you still here? And I think when he asked the question, because it's not often that I hear my disappointments with the church and my experiences with the church described with the word heartache or being heartbroken. And yet I think it's a very accurate description that when I look at how my church has failed to honor those of us who are committed to the sanctity of all life, including black life and including LGBTQ lives. When I think of my own experiences of not being fully accepted in the Catholic church, it is heartbreak. When I, when I see how I'm described in certain segments of the press, or when I see how, Certain bishops will say that I'm not welcome in their diocese or I can't speak in their institutions. That is heartbreaking, especially for someone like myself, who's been a priest for almost 39 years. It's almost four decades of service to the church. Or even when I see the article wanting to describe me as kind of a Martin Luther, and I say, no, that's not me. I am not a Martin Luther. I am not trying to leave the church. I don't want to tear down the church. I am in the church and do what I do because I love the church. And why am I still here despite that heartbreak? I am here because despite the heartbreak, there is something beautiful about Catholicism. At its core, Catholicism is a way of life that says that the whole world is filled with the hidden presence of God. That's a worldview that I love. I love the fact that Catholicism is a faith that says that ordinary life, whether it's Bread and wine and water and oil, or whether it's the love between people, whether that's between the man and woman or between the two men or two women, that that love, when we witness it, we are witnessing the face of God and we're touching something which is deeper and bigger than we are. We call it a sacramental imaginary. That's just a big word for saying that ordinary life puts us in touch with God. And Catholicism is a religion that helps me to understand that better than any other that I'm aware of. And it's not to say that I don't get frustrated with my church and angry with my church. And there are times when I've wept over this church, and there aren't even times when I haven't thought about leaving this church. But this is my home. This is, the language that I speak when I pray is a Catholic language. It's how I encounter that mystery that we call God. I do it in and through a Catholic language and in and through a Catholic tradition. And yes, I think that the house needs some serious remodeling, but it's still my home. And that's why I stay despite the heartbreak. I stay because this is my vocation. This is the work that God has given me to do. And even when I don't like that work sometimes, and even when I've wanted to, to leave it, this is the place where I feel called to be. And there's a joy in it too. There's a joy in it. How does Jeremiah say that, even when I don't want to do this work, there's like a fire burning in within that won't let me go. That's why I stay. This is where God wants me to be. And this is the, as Tony Morrison would say, this is the, the work my soul was meant to do. So this is why I stay in the church. I'm not a Martin Luther. I have no theses that nail a church wall. No, this is my home. And it's these are my people, and I love them even when they make me. I was gonna say a word I can't say in the air, <laughs> even when they make me really, really mad. <laughs> this is my home, this is why I stay.
1: Well, Father Brian Massengale, I think that is just a wonderful place for us to end. We're so grateful. I think this now may be your third and hopefully not last time joining us on the Francis Effect podcast. I believe that your response to that question is a is a response that resonates with the hearts and minds of a lot of our listeners who find themselves asking that question, if not on a daily basis, then on a frequent basis. And so I think that will bring a great sense of solidarity and support and inspiration to a lot of the folks who are listening to us today. So thank you again for taking the time uh, to be with us. And uh, we look forward to the next time we can have a conversation on the air with you. And with that, join us for our next episode of the Francis effect. We'll be back in a minute.
0: Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout-out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.